Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The New Statesman. Hello, I'm Katie Stallard, and you're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Then, later in the week, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. Today, I'm speaking to the journalist and author Tim Marshall, whose books include the international bestseller Prisoners of Geography, We'll discuss his new book, The Future of Geography, and why the next great power contest will be in space. Tim, thanks for joining me. It's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you for the invitation. And I think in, in, in the interest of clarity, we both should admit that we're former colleagues in another life. We are, yes. Listeners know you as the internationally acclaimed best-selling author, Tim Marshall. I first met you many years ago when we both worked at Sky News and where you were extraordinarily kind and generous and encouraging to those of us humble, lowly reporters. I particularly remember you taking me for a coffee before I headed off to Moscow and downloading all of your wisdom about spheres of influence, the near abroad, having thoroughly embarrassed you. Astropolitics and the future of geography, space, the final frontier, the next great geopolitical battleground. What first drew you to look up and to tackle this extraordinarily complex, Mm. I think it's fair to say, subject? It is complex, and yet at the same time, it's less complex the moment it hits you that, hang on a minute, everything that's happening up there is happening down here. And hopefully, I know a couple of things about what's happening down here, and it's being mirrored up there. And George Orwell said that sometimes the hardest thing to see is what's right in front of your nose. And it's been obvious for several years, but it was just that sort of clarity of thought that it's the same. And that therefore, as I write about international relations, this is simply another area in which that is playing out. So let's write about that because there's a lot of very learned and much more expert people than me writing about this, but I I didn't see a book for the layperson, which is what I am as well. And I was fascinated by the subject. So on I went. So you you go through really the entire of humankind's history of thinking Hmm. about space, starting... I think that actually with the Big Bang. I tell you when I start, Katie, it is (laughs) 0.00001 second after the Big Bang. Sorry, I interrupted you. But yeah, what I wanted to do was 
reframe our relationship as humans with the cosmos from its earliest times that we were conscious of it and how we explained things through the gods and the ghosts, as I say, but then through a very long journey and then accelerating through science, our better understanding of it is now. So I, I just, the beginnings of the book frame it before we get to the politics. If we skip through several billion years, I wanted to really look at the Cold War in yeah. particular as our starting point and how that great contest really drove the space race of the last century. Really accelerated it and and to our con- central to our consciousness, culminating in those incredible scenes when Neil Armstrong actually walks on the moon. But uh, it, it was an integral part of the Cold War, and it was, and you know this from your previous life in Moscow and Beijing, and of course now Washington, those two of the great epicenters the current space race, but the previous iteration was Soviets and the Americans. And each side really wanted to use the space race to prove that their system was the superior system. And therefore, this was the journey mankind, humankind, as we now say, should take. And in the research, I came across this clip by Kennedy. Now, Kennedy's great space speech, the one that's most remembered is, we don't go there because it's easy. We go there because it's hard because he went on to be the mayor of Quimby in The Simpsons, but leave that to one side. Excellent. Flawless. Yeah. But I found that another section in the 1962 Congress speech where he says in terms, we need to win this so that people have a better, easier decision to make when they decide which fork in the road humankind is going to take. He actually spelt it out. That's what it was about. And I do think it underpinned it. And of course, there was the military aspect to it Well, as well. But that was the underpinning. It was the politics of the Cold War that propelled Neil Armstrong to the surface of the moon. And there was a real chance that the Soviets would win that race. Can no. you give us a sense of the context? I think what we remember, particularly I'm speaking from the United States, is the great triumphant small step for man on the moon. But actually, the late 1950s, it yeah. really looked like it might not be the US. Yeah. The Soviets were first up with Sputnik. And only a few days later, the Americans tried to launch their satellite to say, look, we have parity. And it blew up on the launch pad in the full view of the cameras. And this, the headlines were Flopnik. And then, I mean, they did get parity. But then the Russians, Soviets, went ahead with Gagarin, first human in space, and again, the declassified materials that the White House and others have put out subsequently make it quite clear that the Americans were aware that many of their allies were looking at them and thinking, are we backing the wrong horse in this race? It's not that they would all, Britain and France or whoever, would immediately have switched sides, but it's a little bit similar to the situation with Taiwan now. In the event that Taiwan was to fall without the Americans giving any support to Taiwan, as every single... American friend in the region would start to think, ah, okay. And that was the rationale again that, and the embassies were sending in reports back to Washington saying, all our allies are asking questions. How powerful are you? Are the Soviets going to win this? And this was clearly part of the strategic thinking. You have a great quote, which I'm going to ask you to replicate because I can't fully remember the wording, but of the impact of reaching the moon and what that did then for the future of the US space program. <laughs> I think it was Tom Wolfe's quote as, 
because it was great and most of his were. And forgive me if it was somebody else's, but yeah, it was. He wrote in a long magazine article that it was one giant leap for mankind, one knee in the groin for NASA. Because, understandably, Nixon looked at this, looked at the cost of it, and then Apollo 12 went and came back. Apollo 13 tried to go and didn't make it, but came back. Apollo 14 went, Apollo 50. And he's saying, what's the point? We've done that. Why are we spending all this money? And he pretty much pulled the plug on the funding. And they switched to the space shuttle, which was amazing, and the ISS, also amazing. But that's actually the re- there's two answers to the question, why has it taken us 70, 60 years, 50 years, sorry, before we're going back, because the Americans intend to be back in 2026. And the, the first answer is that one, is that quote, the knee in the groin, what's the point of going back? But the second one is that was fueled by the international relations of the time. This is fueled by that as well, but by the commerce, by the re- race for resources, by the military space race, by the fact that the private enterprise is now putting in gazillions of dollars. So that's reignited it. And Musk, I wouldn't say single-handedly, but Musk has vastly reduced the costs of breaking out of the atmosphere with the reusable rockets. The technology of reducing the size of the satellites to almost a Rubik's Cube, certainly a shoebox size, has reduced the cost for second and third tier players to actually be out there. And so it's here and now in its front and center. So what does this mean, firstly, for, I think the right terminology is low Earth orbit Mm. and how crowded, but how consequential that sphere has become? It's a very important sphere. And of course, the space out there is finite because it's a ring. And it's prime, it's prime real estate. It's where so many of the satellites are, both observation, weather, you name it, that's where they are. Some of the military early warning systems are there as well. And this is another useful analogy that just as, let's say, when we switch from sail to coal, the British under Churchill was the first sea lord, and he said, right, we are, we're going to move to coal. And then the switch from coal to oil. Well, as a leading power, no leading power is going to say, we'll just let everybody else go and get that and hope that they give us some. They will go and get it. And it's the same with that low Earth orbit space. You have to be there. And you have to be there in numbers to be a player. And you can't wait until there's very little space left. And there's there's tens of thousands of satellites will be going up over the next decade. But if you move up even higher, geosynchronous, this is the orbit where a satellite moves around the Earth at the same speed that the Earth is turning, and consequently it's always over the same piece of territory, which is extraordinarily good for surveillance, also for communications and TV and stuff. You have to get a license from the ITU, which is an international telecommunications union, a UN body. They're only going to give so many licenses, and it's first come, first serve, so you have to be there. And the last bit of the analogy, that's, for example, the resources on the moon, well, again... There's a lot of stuff there we need for the 21st century, lithium, for example. And there's helium-3, which we might be able to use as free, clean energy. That's still in progress. But if you see your competition, if America or China sees the other one going up there and having a look at, are we going to get helium-3? You can't bet that it'll probably never be used. 
you have to go there as well. So does that mean we are now entering a new race to the moon, but this time for these natural resources? Yeah, it's it's three-pronged. Primarily, it's commercial and getting the resources, because honestly, everything's there. Silicon, lithium, and a whole bunch of other metals I've barely heard of, some of which are called rare earth metals, which is quite amusing because A, they're on the moon, and B, they're not that rare. But we need them for the renewable energy, for our phones, our cars, for the the wind turbines, etc. So it's driven by that. And then second tier down from that is the launching pad to to, to Mars. There's a massive debate in this world about do you go via the moon or do you go straight to Mars? And it's a huge debate. And at the moment, it is being won by people that think we go to the moon, we build moon bases in the early 2030s. And from there, you leap up to Mars because you need incredibly little fuel in comparison to all that fuel you need to break through the atmosphere of here. And then the third one, there, there is a military aspect to it, having the presence on the moon will give you lines of sight and the potential for satellites. And I personally believe satellites are destined to be armed for defensive purposes only, I'm sure, Katie. Of course. But, so again, it's useful to have kit up there. And it's really on. This isn't, I'm probably late to the game. This isn't really accelerating. It's been going on a few years. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both from as little as £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's €1 a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. Hi, I'm Anoush, and I host the New Statesman podcast. Twice a week, we get under the skin of Westminster to help understand what's going on and what's going to happen next. We interview politicians, policymakers, and people on the front line to get you the full story behind the headlines. Plus, hear from our award-winning editorial team, including political editor Andrew Marr, to get to the bottom of what on earth is happening. Listen to the New Statesman podcast. You can subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.
There's been a lot of focus on the China-Russia relationship down here on Earth, but I was really interested to read in the book about, for instance, joint plans for a a lunar base. Can you explain a little bit about what's going on there? Again, going to the geopolitics and now astropolitics of it, it it's interesting how much it mirrors it because, as you know from this unlimited friendship that Xi and Putin have announced, which I think is very limited, but there is no question in my mind that the partnership is solid for the time being. China is not going to abandon Russia. Sorry, it's another subject, but they're not going to abandon Russia. I doubt they will arm them to the extent that they want to be armed. But where it mirrors it is this reversal on Earth, which has happened, where China was the very much the junior partner when they were friends as communists before they fell out. And they used to say that Chinese technology is just re-engineered Russian technology. And it's just completely flipped. So now on Earth, China is absolutely 100% the senior partner in this partnership. And it's the same in space. They are now probably ahead of the Russians in some respects. They are the only ones that have a space station, a nation state space station, the Chinese. And they are the one that is driving going to the moon and building this base with Russia, to be honest with you, tagging along. You write that the idea that space is a global common is disappearing. Mm. When you look at those kind of initiatives of the possibility of a Chinese-Russian base on the moon, all of these satellites zooming around this increasingly cluttered space, what are the rules of the road? Do we have (laughs) effective international treaties that are governing this? Or is this something our governments are working towards? What is the situation? Yeah, you said effective and governing and treaties. (laughs) We have one of those. We do have treaties. We have several, but the big one is the Outer Space Treaty, 1967. It's effective as long as everybody agrees with it and there's no pressure on it. Not everybody agrees with it, and now there's enormous pressure on it. And there's two... The biggest problem with it is it was drawn... It was drafted in, I assume, 66 and then signed and mostly ratified in 67. So, for example, it says things like, we all agree we won't have weapons of mass destruction in space. Cool, I will not put a nuclear bomb on my satellite. Fine. But I will put a laser on it at some point. Because there's nothing in the treaty about lasers, because, of course, it was James Bond and now Austin Powers' territory. So that's just one example of many. And the second one is the commercialization, the fact that private enterprise is in here. Now, there are paragraphs in that treaty which you could apply to the private sector, but it's loose language. And so it needs to be redrawn. Everything needs to be redrafted to take into account the 21st century's technology, not the 20th century's, to take into account the commercial aspects. That's the main thing. Alongside that, or incorporated into it, is the problem with the satellites. There were very few when that was drawn up. Now, there are no rules of the road to say how close your satellite can be to my satellite. And if my satellite is part of my nuclear early warning system, and your satellite is one of the ones that has got big robotic grappling arms, and they exist now in order to clear space debris, and it's approaching me, I'm getting very nervous. Is this some sort of preemptive thing ahead of, why, why are you so close to my nuclear early warning system? So that sort of thing, I think that's urgent. And it's called SSA, Space Situational Awareness. And I think we urgently need to be talking about this stuff. And obviously, the people 
who work in that industry, they know it, but I don't think this has escaped out into um, general consciousness. And you also, you write about NATO amending the Article 5 Mutual Defence Clause a couple of years back to include space, but in very vague terms. <laughs> what do we know about how the Alliance thinks about space as a theatre of possible conflict? They were, as an organisation, a little late to the game. The Americans were first in with Space Command, and now France has one, Britain has a Space Command or Space Force that have various names. India, I think, has one, China, Russia. And they're primarily, because all those countries and others have recognised the mantra that space is a warfighting domain. And at the moment, it's because you cannot fight a modern war without access to space for a whole bunch of reasons, surveillance and others, and munitions guidance. I mean, it's played a huge role in Ukraine this past 14 months. But they also have also realized because things have changed, and it's not an exact example, but the Chinese balloon recently, I've concocted, I wrote an article recently where I concocted a scenario, and I know I am concocting it, and it hasn't happened, and it might not, but they're useful, these scenarios, for talking about what if, because if you have it, something will happen. NATO redrew some of its language, but deliberately loosely, because it clearly says if you're in my sovereign territory with something hostile, uh, this is a hostile act against a NATO member. But we have not defined where our sovereignty ends horizontally. There are different definitions of whether it's 60 miles up, 80 miles up. But even if you were 81 miles up and you were using a satellite above my territory, 80 miles up, to attack one of my friends, discuss. Now, obviously, they've left it so loose so that they don't have to get drawn and they can take things on a case-by-case basis. And the reason I mentioned the balloon was, this is just a scenario. Supposing... By coincidence, when it was the Chinese balloon was over the nuclear silos, which it was in Montana, something super secret that the Americans were doing, by coincidence and only coincidence, happened then. And it had spotted something that was a serious secret. It's almost certain that balloon had kit on it that could send its information that it was capturing up to a Chinese satellite and then back down to Beijing. Supposing... The Americans realized this, realized they had 10 minutes to do something or not do something. And if they didn't do anything, those incredibly high secrets about their nuclear capabilities were going to be in Beijing. Do they shoot it down? And these are the scenarios that military people plan for a raft of scenarios. But this is the sort of thing that we're now, I think we're playing catch up. And in that scenario, if they do shoot it down, where does that leave us? On that example, when I mean, on the real example, the Americans shot it down over the sea for safety reasons and over there within their 12 nautical miles of sovereign territory. And so, under international law, they did have the right. Now, the Chinese can say force majeure, act of nature, you shouldn't have done it, fine. But it was fairly clear cut. And I think it would be fairly clear cut in that sense as well, just that it would be perhaps more. It would be taken even more seriously than that event was. Or let's supposing it, okay, it's going to take two hours. And by this time, it's floated out into international waters. 
that makes things even more difficult about whether I'm going to shoot it down, because that is an act mm -hmm. of war if you do it in international waters. We need to get the rules of the road nailed down and written. I want to ask you briefly in the time that we have left, you have a couple of scenarios at the end of the book outlining how this could be applied in the real world, one of which is regarding Taiwan. Mm -hmm. um, can you take us through how critical satellites and this contested space could be in that scenario? If you were prepared to risk a full-scale war, and that is not, I'm not saying it's likely, but it's not exactly unthinkable over Taiwan, once you'd taken that decision and were you pressed the go button, one of the first things you would do is try to take out your opponent's satellites to blind them. And in this pretend scenario I, I come up with, they don't actually go for the mainland. In my pretend scenario, the Chinese are look like they're going to the mainland. The Americans are puzzled because they haven't got enough landing ships. Everything launches, the aircraft launch, and suddenly the American satellites are taken down. By the time they've woken up, all the landing ships are now returning back to shore, but all the planes have gone down to Kinman Island, three miles off, whatever it is, off the coast of China, the mainland, and they've captured it and it's too late. And at that point, when your satellites are back up, it's game over. You now have a choice. Oh, they haven't invaded Taiwan, but they have, they have, because it's a part of it, but it's a tiny little island. Are we going to go to war over that? And these are the sort of scenarios. And so I'm pretty confident that sort of thing would happen without any question in a modern warfare. If it's all out, you will go for your opponent's satellites, mostly by dazzling, but there, there is direct ascent. You launch a ballistic missile from Earth and you can hit satellites. Four countries have done it test to test it. Again, there needs to be an ASAP ban. The Americans have said they will have a moratorium on testing this stuff. Chinese and Russians won't because they know the American forces are vastly superior at the moment, but this is something they have parity with them. And so until they catch up with leg or land their earthbound forces, they will retain the ability to fire satellites. Sorry, that was a very long answer, and you said be sure. your final question. So no, it was it was fascinating and unnerving in equal amounts. One brief brief final question: Has grappling with the history of humankind's attempts to understand space, the space race, and the future of astropolitics, made you more hopeful about the the future and how we will handle this, or? Do you think we will bring all of the same issues that we have here on Earth to the space realm? I have no doubt we will do the latter. Why wouldn't we after 12,000 years of history? I'll try and be brief. The first time some fella came out of a cave with a big new shiny spear, every year than what else, men usually, said, I want a big new shiny spear. And it hasn't changed now, and it won't change for a long time, but... We've had a very long progression towards getting where we are, and we are mostly now perhaps better than we used to be. And the cooperation and science is what has got us this far, this rationality, because it's science that has brought us to these amazing peaks which have helped all of humanity. And I think that trumps the, the negative side of our scientific advances it's, it is onwards and upwards with some pretty deep troughs along the way, but it's onwards and upwards. Tim Marshall, thank you so much for joining me today and congratulations on a truly fantastic book. Thank you. 
This has been World Review from the New Statesman. You can read all our international coverage on our website, newstatesman.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a nice review. The producer has been Adrian Bradley. The team will be back later in the week. I'm Katie Stallard. Thanks for listening and until next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Trust in politics is broken, so can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.